The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells. With me today are Maureen O'Connor, New York sex columnist. Hey, Maureen. Hi, David. And Allison Davis of The Cut. Hey, Allison. Hey, David. Today we're going to be talking about sex on pot and uh, specifically a cultivated strain of aphrodisiac weed called sex pot with two X's. Allison wrote a great piece for The Cut about the woman behind it who's the owner of a medical marijuana dispensary. And we're also going to be talking about whether dating apps are responsible for a rise in STDs, which is what the Rhode Island Surgeon General says is happening. So is our future of random sex also a future of burning when you pee? Maureen will try to answer that question in part by giving us a tour of all the new dating apps out there. Okay, on to our first topic, sex on weed. So obviously this woman behind the strain of weed Karen Wagner is her name, I guess, is not the first person to discover that pot and sex are sort of a match made in heaven. Most people who smoke weed know that, like, sex on weed is a great thing and, like, it can be used for aphrodisiac purposes. But Karen discovered one strain of weed uh, that's a derivative of something from the 80s called Mr. Nice, uh, called that because it's, like, low THC, so it makes you really relaxed but not super, super stoned. So you can have great, as she says, full body sex, but like your head is still kind of clear. So what Karen wanted to do was market the weed that would consistently deliver great sex every time. And she found that this strain that she now calls sex pot does. So for her purposes, is there is there a difference between being an aphrodisiac weed and a weed that's good to fuck on? Because aphrodisiac is like it puts you in the mood, right? Right. I guess it's like when you someone offers you an oyster and you kind of know, like, even if the oyster is not exactly what's going to get you there, like just the the branding or the myth around it, like, will help set that mood, which is why she calls it an aphrodisiac weed, although it does have the natural properties that'll kind of help your brain relax. And you're saying that she actually says it's for women in particular, right? Which is so funny that it came from this Mr. Nice strain. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Sex Pot has significantly lower levels of THC than like what you would normally want if you're trying just to get stoned. So this has about, I guess, 11 to 14 percent. She tries to keep it consistent on 14 percent, but most people are buying weed at like 18 percent up to 25 percent THC. Which still seems like so crazy high to me, right? I mean... Well, 14 percent? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like the pot that our parents were smoking was like 5 percent, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's gone up uh, quite a bit the strains now but they're also kind of manipulated much more than the pot your parents were smoking they're grown in in kind of more high-tech grow houses versus um, like outdoor fields but Karen and I think part of the reason this her strain continues to have such a low THC level is that she only grows it outside it's sun grown which like she says adds to the special mystical quality of the sex weed, unlike, I don't know, your standard OG kush that you're buying. or. But why is TH, Why is lower THC good? What is that? It's not just the lower THC, though, is it? That's affecting the sort of body high. No, no, the... but it's why it's better for, for, for women. women right? oh, okay. High levels of THC have an anti-estrogen effect, which makes you a little less in the mood. Um, and so lower levels help relax you, and you're, but you're not going to lose the therapeutic benefits. Like you're still going to feel up to having sex, but you can also relax and lose some of those mental obstacles and blocks that keep you from having great sex, anecdotally reported. <laughs> Isn't <laughs> when, it also possible, though, that 
I mean, speaking of like hangups and blocks, like can't you get so stoned that you're like freaking out about X, Y, or Z and you're... Yeah, just yeah. like not feeling very sexy. Yeah. You're focused on, I don't know. Or like for for some people, like getting the munchies and then all of a sudden your need for Cheetos might outweigh your need <laughs> to like want to have sex. That's a thing that could happen. When I did a story about marijuana and sex and marijuana before when the cut had its weed week, I found that a lot of women in particular talked about weed for sex more than I heard about men. It seemed like women were talking about, you know, like being in the mood, sort of like loosening it up so they could orgasm and that sort of thing. Whereas when we talk about a, an enhancement for men, it's always about just like the strength of his boner right. and that sort of thing. And weed is not great for that. No. <laughs> um, it's funny, though. I remember then also when I spoke to some like doctors who studied it, they all pointed out that when weed's a problem in sex, it's usually that, as they politely put it, your dosage is too high, i.e. you got too stoned. Right. <laughs> and then you were, you know, lazy or you were paranoid or you felt like you couldn't move. That's interesting. I spoke to um, another medical marijuana bigwig, this guy, Stephen D'Angelo, who owns Harborside, which is, I guess, the biggest, he's called the biggest pot shop in the world. But I think just like maybe in California. (laughs) Um, But he says that most people who come in to the dispensary is looking for marijuana for like libido purposes are men. There are very few products that are kind of like women friendly in terms of marijuana and sex. There's like one weed lube, which I think you've, you've written about or you were aware of. I was trying to get somebody to bring it back for me or whenever they were traveling to places with weed. So, like, it's it's lube, but it also gets you high? Yeah, it gets you high through your... um, Anus? uh, (laughs) (laughs) Wherever you you put it. Wherever you rub it, yeah, it gets you high. How much of the, like, pot stores are (laughs) sex-oriented? I I think it's... I mean, people realize that it's a big market um, and is, like, medical marijuana and marijuana products in general become a little bit more, uh, like, specific and tailor-fit. Like, people are going to start, like, I think sex is probably the first area where we're going to see a ton of products um, popping up. So soon, maybe it'll be, like, weed sex shops and just combining the two best things. So we've been talking about a new strain of aphrodisiac weed called sex pot, and also, I guess, whether there could be possibly any downside to fucking while high. Now let's move on to our second topic, the dating app plague. We're probably going to end up making fun of this study a little bit, but actually the numbers are kind of horrifying. From 2013 until 2014, that Surgeon General in Rhode Island announced recently the number of infectious syphilis cases increased by 79%, the number of gonorrhea cases increased by 30%, and the number of newly identified HIV cases increased by nearly 33%. And that's just in Rhode Island, and it's just in one year, but it's it sounds pretty bad. Like, those... Those are really significant increases. You almost don't believe them, right? Yeah, if there was like some reporting error or something. But a lot of people also point out that some of the rises we've seen in reported rates of STDs are because we're better at catching them now. Yeah, those numbers are really high. In one year? In a single fucking year, yeah. 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 (laughs) I'm actually quite shocked. I actually didn't think that hard about it until right now. And the Surgeon General thinks that this is mostly because of dating apps and the way that that's... I guess his theory is encouraged more people to have more sex or more people to have a different kind of sex, which is more dangerous. Or I'm not exactly sure exactly what his theory is. But this sounds like the same, like uh, coming from the same place as like your mom saying, watch out for razor blades and chocolate at Halloween. Like it just seems like a kind of unfounded to bl- to blame it on on Tinder specifically or dating apps right. specifically. Like it doesn't feel very. I mean, because the the data itself mentioned uh, like a bunch of other high risk uh, behaviors that contributed to this rise. It's not just 
or mm-hmm. like dependence on Tinder. Right. So after this press release that um, Rhode Island had, there were all these like People Magazine's take on it was swipe left. Report says dating apps like Tinder are responsible for increasing STDs. And they start describing the like suffering from dating apps. So I looked into it and I was trying to figure out where the Surgeon General got this idea that dating apps were among the contributing factors in this rise. And what all I could find was that there was one study from research done at the Los Angeles LGBT Center between 2011 and 2013. Um, They studied about 7,000 gay men and asked them if they used dating apps, sort of like how they met their sexual partners, if they met them online, in person, and they also studied who had STDs given, you know, just a variety of things they did in their sex lives. And What's interesting about this is that though they did find that people who had casual sex through dating apps were more likely to have gonorrhea and chlamydia, they found that no matter where people met the people they hooked up with, there was no difference in, say, HIV rates. And they also, however, noted that finding your hookups and boyfriends on dating apps, that was also just sort of a different set of people. So they had higher rates of certain STDs, but that could also have just been connected to the fact that they were a younger group of people. They tended to be white and Asian. Different communities just tend to have higher, lower percentages of different sexually transmitted diseases. Right. Correlation is not causation here. Exactly. And so, though, you know, that maybe you sign up for this app and there's a higher rate of people using this that have, say, chlamydia or something like that, that doesn't mean that it's going to cause that in you. And also, this study, also keep in mind, was only one city and one very, you know, specific set of people within that city, too. I couldn't find anything else connected to the use of dating apps and relative frequency of risky sexual behavior or STDs. There's also sort of no guarantee that, you know, people just because they're using dating app are going to take more risks in their sex lives. And you see this as part of a bigger story about kind of fear-mongering about dating apps in general, right? You've seen a lot of that. We have this sort of perception of dating apps are somehow funneling strangers into our lives, and how much should they protect us from those people? Hinge recently had a sort of little marketing campaign where they're saying, we're going to flag all the married people who, like, who say that they're married on Facebook, but they're trying to date you. Um, as though... also the, the grade, right, that, like, uh, gives people on a dating app grades, like, this guy has an F, and lets him stay on the site, so you don't, but you won't date him, right? They Do they to... all have that? Do they, like, there's a way for, like, people to give feedback, so to speak? Yeah, they give feedback and, like, It's like know... Yelp review. <laughs> right. The Yelp of Right, Lulu, that oh, sort yeah. of thing. There's, this, there's about... a sort of combined sense of like it's too easy now we're afraid strangers are entering our homes as though they're different than the people you would have met when you weren't using an app at least uh in a on a dating app i can kind of tell vet them right in a bar it's a little more difficult but so if you give someone an f are you can you also say like i'm giving this guy an f because he gave me herpes or (laughs) there's a new app that i just downloaded and have been like trying to wrangle and use that is supposed to stop all the dilemmas you can have from the randos you're meeting um on tinder and such it's called ender n-d-e-r um, and what you do is you, no vowels. you <laughs> right, and it tries, um, you like enter the person's phone number and it basically does a Google stock for you. There was also this, just last week, <laughs> the gay dating app Scruff 
noted that they had started, they added a new function to their app where if you are geolocated in a country where gay sex is illegal, such as Saudi Arabia or the Sudan or something like that, um, it informs you. I love the idea that you're like going, you're traveling somewhere and like going to have some random and you have no idea what the You didn't know until it happened. (laughs) Well, the reason they did it was that there was, um, last year there was a story where a user in Saudi Arabia said that um, the police in Riyadh had used the app to entice and then deport his one of his acquaintances. There have been some reports. I don't know if too much of it has been confirmed or not. It's kind of hard to confirm these things, given the nations where it's happening, too, that some gay dating apps had been used that way in, like, Egypt. And so what Scruff did note was that they have, like, 8 million users worldwide, but they said that um, of the accounts registered in the U.S., Britain, and Australia, they found about 100,000 of those users had gone to nations where gay sex was illegal at some point in the last year. And they thought, well, if they're turning on our app, it's sort of they saw it as sort of some combination of some responsibility issue and then a sort of like public safety announcement. I think some of that is that there's sort of negative PR if it's, you know, used in a in a punitive way for people who are there. And then perhaps some sense of like travel advisory. Although, I, I mean, it's also interesting to think that some of those people who are traveling to those places are there in a weird sex tourism way to have like taboo sex in a way that they couldn't at home. I don't know. I was trying to imagine the lifestyle of somebody who travels so much that they don't even, they don't know. You don't know a... what country you're in, maybe. Right. You know, you're just you. like flying from airport to airport right. and like. Now, I was trying to imagine what job would cause that, but uh, I, I assume they exist. Something in finance, I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but on the big question, like, what do we think about how dating apps are changing sexual behavior? Do you think that? It is making people take more risks. Do you think it is making people have more sex or is that all just silly to think? I think there is a false sense of security when you like meet someone on an app like Tinder and you've exchanged a few messages and like everybody kind of has their litmus test or like their their indications of like, okay, this is a person that I feel is safe to meet. But you really have no idea, right? right. Like you have no idea who you're meeting. They could be like riddled with gonorrhea and like you have no idea. But, like <laughs> so. you also don't know if like the guy who's the friend of your friend that you meet at a party is riddled with gonorrhea. That's true. I'm trying to figure out though if meeting a stranger is different sexually when you meet them on an app versus in real life. And I'm always been of the camp that it's the exact same thing. I mean, functionally, what is even the difference of if I meet a guy at a bar and I like him and then, you know, the next day I intensely Facebook stalk him versus I met him first through Facebook and then we went to a bar. I don't see those as fundamentally different things. I agree with that idea of a false sense of security because so often say you meet somebody and then you look and you're like, oh, well, I saw his LinkedIn and we have three friends in common on Facebook, thus he is a safe man. He is okay. And, I mean, that's not actually true. Right. If I'm looking for, like, a random hookup, like, Tinder is the first place I go, right? And then, like, I'm taking all sorts of stupid risks. I'm like, sure, come over, gentlemen, that I've spoken to for maybe 15 minutes at 12.30 in the morning, and, like, I will let you into my home and have sex with you and then kick you out. Like, if I meet someone in a bar, I'm less inclined to, like, invite them into your home. Into my home. Is that about riskiness, though, or is that about just more more social obstacles that you have to that's true i guess it's a well no i was actually gonna, i was trying to but... think about that in um when you think about say what each sort of generation's portrait of like the wildest sex you could have and that you know that right now we sort of think of like the person who like 
summons a million people on Tinder or Grinder, and they're bringing you know like man after man to fuck them. That's right. like the most sort of like risky thing we can imagine. Whereas like I don't know when I read books from like the seventies, it'll be like a glory hole or that kind of you know <laughs> that you're like okay, so there are oh, different man. ways to be completely a, you know to get lots and lots of anonymous ass. And as far as I can tell, the bigger difference would be doing it in a home versus doing it at like a wild sex party. Right. I think a glory hole seems way crazier to me the, than the, the, so Okay, I mean, that's an extreme. Like maybe I, that, that might not be the correct metaphor. No, but for me, but. even like, the, I mean, having sex with someone random on a, that you meet on a dating app doesn't actually seem that crazy to me at all. It seems sort of like bureaucratic. You're like, this is the person who I'm going to bring into my bed it's like truly efficient I will i've say. read <laughs> what prof- i've read all your resumes right. and i've made a pile <laughs> you i've looked at your instagram we're great well is there like do you think there's a future in which you can include in that like information like some clean bill of health to show people that like you actually don't have x y or z std i like wouldn't be surprised if that's as i feel like dating apps are getting more and more like protective in a way like mm-hmm. with the grade or with this the one that you were mentioning what was ender ender, ender yeah Except for, like, the confidentiality issues of putting someone's, like, sex tests of the sex Well, there are, um, there are dating sites that are, for instance, like, HIV-positive people and that sort of thing. So those exist. When I've looked at, you know, like, Grindr and that type of thing through my friends, obviously, you'll see people saying HIV-negative or positive but undetectable and sort of uh, permutations explaining sort of their the STD statuses. Is there anything like that on straight? No. I've never seen no. that on a straight dating app, no. But I also think straight, the straight community doesn't really, we don't discuss STDs and as, as openly, I feel like. as like Yeah, it's just a little bit of a different culture, right. I think. So I feel like if someone ever put that on their profile, it would be, even if it was, I have a clean bill of health, no syphilis, it's like that's an, an automatic turn off. That'd be odd. Right, like why would you even take it there? Why would buddy? you announce that? Right. But I feel like maybe we should Right. I don't know. I think that we assume that that's one of those things that people, you know, if it if it's important to them, they like sort of talk about on like day three or whenever they're the moment for that happens. But also, if you think about the sort of stereotypical dating app user, it's somebody who's like making contact with a bunch of people at once, scrolling through all of these um, other profiles, and you think it would just be like a waste of time for them to then, in meeting the person, have to be like, okay, now so you know, I've got gonorrhea or whatever it would just be so much more efficient if they were able to put that in their profile so everybody who was like interacting with them they knew was already okay with it right like link it up to your apple health profile or something yeah (laughs) i feel like that has to be right around the corner oh that's terrifying but yes (laughs) and then no more lying about your height if you're hooked up to your apple health (laughs) exactly is that a big concern of yours yes it is (laughs) yeah people people with their heights on tinder all the time you see that perpetually you're worried about men lying about their height or about you lying about their height Oh, men lying about their yeah. height. Like, I'm 5'2". You can deal with it. But, yeah. like, don't trick me into thinking you're 6'1". Anyway. That obsession with height was something I didn't fully grasp until I started using Tinder. And you see every single person, like, I'm six feet. Really six feet, not lying. I, You know? <laughs> is it the taller the better? Or is it just you don't want someone who's really short? I believe Ann Friedman wrote the, a good essay about why everybody needs to drop their height obsessions. Right. Just, and just give it a try. Yeah. 
I really, when I see a short dude with a tall woman, I'm like impressed and amazed. And I think that they have, must have like great sex. <laughs> I love dating short men because it makes me feel so tall and willowy. Oh, I'm the exact opposite. I like need to, like a, a dominating giant. giant person. Yeah. I don't six, know. Six, eight, six, like six, minimum. Eight, right. NBA. It makes me feel like Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, you know, that I'm like, look at me. I'm just so tall, oh, yeah, which I'm not actually that tall. Though. What but... a terrible celebrity couple reference, though. Who oh, wants I don't... to feel like Nicole Kidman I just want to feel Cruise. like them, but I want to feel like I look like Nicole Kidman. Fair. David, as a married man, do you feel like you're missing out on the app craze? I'm basically grateful. I don't know. It doesn't <laughs> seem it doesn't seem like such a paradise. I understand the like I understand the appeal of like, you know, endless sex partners, but I also think like scrolling I can't even I don't even like use Spotify. It's like I, you know, I have never tweeted. I can't I like <laughs> The idea of channeling my sex life through my smartphone just seems completely insane to me. Yeah, I actually don't love dating apps. I use them because you have to, but I'm not a big. I have dating app fatigue. Actually, I think that like I just reached the point where it was so much. Oh, maybe that's just dating fatigue. I don't know. I think everybody. Well, you have the wrong job. I think it's not that. um, Seriously, sex columnist. (laughs) It's not. It's not that I'm fatigued of using dating apps. Um, and actually, there's a whole bunch of new ones. I'm obsessed with the app Happen, the one that lets you oh, yeah. um, very, very creepily so geolocates creepy. where you go, which like it's just probably a massing amount of horrible amounts of data about everyone. But then it tells you like, hey, you and this guy like cross paths three times. You go to the same bar regularly. Hey, why don't you just be there? And you know, it to me that feels so natural that you're like, hey, why don't we be there at the same time and then we can chat. I love that dating app. I think it's great. So yes, I like dating apps, but I think is that I just sort of at some point get sick of. This sort of like endless fear-mongering discussion, and it seems strange to me that we're pinning all of our modern dating fears on technology, of all things. That just seems weird to me. Especially because, as we learned last week, uh, we're all actually fucking less than our parents did. (laughs) Exactly. We need to freak out We need as many tools as possible (laughs) to get us there, all right? (laughs) And that's it for Sex Lives. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. For Allison Davis and Maureen O'Connor, I'm David Wallace-Wells, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.